0: Welcome back to the Listener's Commentary on the Gospel of Luke. In this session, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 24. We are still fairly early on in this long middle section of the Gospel that scholars call the travel narrative, where uh, Luke has packaged Jesus' ministry under this, this heading, this rubric of turning his face towards Jerusalem, determined to get to Jerusalem. And so Luke reminds us at times that he is traveling along and he's on his way to Jerusalem. And the reality is, is that Luke hasn't pr- provided like a step-by-step itinerary of Jesus getting there. He is just packaging these stories under that heading. And that section began at 9.51. So we're still very early in that section of Luke's gospel. Here in this specific section, Luke 10, 1 through 24, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. His ministry and his mission continue to grow and expand, heading towards that culmination point there in Jerusalem. And as he is heading in that direction, he recognizes that there is going to be this culmination point, and it's not going to be too long away. So he's continuing to train and equip people for his mission, for the mission of expanding his kingdom. And so here, what he does in Luke chapter 10, he expands the circle from those kingdom servants, from just the 12 that he sent out not long ago, to the 72, to a larger group of disciples that he wants to equip for this ministry. Uh, The last section ended with Jesus challenging potential disciples would be disciples to live for and to proclaim the kingdom of God. Uh, Verse 62 uh, said that um, that, that looking back makes you unfit for the kingdom of God. This is a key part of what it means to be a disciple, to live for, to be on mission for uh, the kingdom of God. And so here in Luke 10, 1 through 24, we see a large group of disciples being sent out to proclaim the kingdom. Here's the way Luke tells the story. Verse 1, Now, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. Remember, this packaging of Jesus being on the road and uh, eventually going to get to Jerusalem. And so Luke has him going from city to city as was Part of his ministry as an itinerant teacher, so he's going to go to various towns, various villages, and so he appoints, it says, 72 others to kind of go prepare the way, to go announce the kingdom so that when he arrives, uh, they are prepared and ready for him. Now, key question here in verse 1 is, is the number 72 or is the number 70? This translation has 72. Some translations have the number 70, and here's the challenge. The manuscripts are evenly divided. It's not totally clear. So I like to have more manuscript wait for 72 than for 70. They're pretty much evenly divided. Um, and it's actually quite possible that Jesus commissions either 70 or 72. He commissions this large number of people um, because Moses did something similar. Moses, at God's instruction, commissioned uh, either 70 or 72 people to help him lead the people that he, uh, he was caring for uh, and those that large group of people for Moses was given some of Moses's power and spiritual authority. You see, Jesus is consciously aware of summing up Israel's story and so he knows that's his role, that's his mission. Jesus is consciously aware that he's the prophet like Moses that was promised to come. Jesus knows that he's leading really a new exodus. We saw that in Luke chapter 9 where he's on the Mount of Transfiguration and Moses and Elijah appear to him and they're talking about the exodus that he's going to accomplish at Jerusalem. So he, he knows that he is in some ways a new and greater Moses leading a new and greater exodus. And interestingly enough, In the account about Moses in Numbers chapter 11, where he commissions a large group of people, guess what? You have these two numbers, 70 and 72. You have 70 elders commissioned with two spares, two extras in that account when you read it. Um, and and that may explain part of the issue here. So we're not sure whether originally it was 70 or 72. Maybe like in the case of Moses, it was actually both, right? Uh, maybe it's 70 plus two spares, just like Moses. Who knows? But the manuscript evidence is evenly divided. And so it's either 70 or 72 uh, here. Not totally sure, but he sends out a large group of disciples. He sends them out, notice, in pairs, which again perhaps uh, follows the Old Testament law that every matter should be established by two or three witnesses. That's what the law instructed, and so Jesus may very intentionally be Making sure that they're in keeping with that as they testify to the presence of Jesus and the coming of His kingdom, and He sends these these group out, these pairs out with these words and this image. This is what He says in verse two. He was saying to them, "The harvest is plentiful." Picture a literal harvest. He's using an image, right? The harvest, wheat harvest, barley harvest, grape or olive harvest from their culture, all things they would have been familiar with. The harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. So we need more, we, we more laborers to help with the harvest. Therefore, plead with the Lord of the harvest, the master who's in charge of the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. And so he, he sends them out with this image that they are like workers in a harvest field, and they should actually pray to the master of the harvest, i.e. Jesus himself, uh, that, that there would be more laborers for the harvest that would be raised up. Now, what follows then are specific instructions given to the 72 about how they're supposed to go about this task as Jesus is getting ready to send them out. He's got instructions for this group of people to make sure they know what their specific role is. And it's really important for us as we read these instructions to keep in mind that these following instructions are given to the 72. They're not given to all believers everywhere. They're not given to all disciples. They're given to the 72. Now, there are principles that we can glean from these instructions to them, but the instructions themselves were very specific uh, to the 72, to their time, their place, their task, um, and we need to respect that. In fact, the apostles in the book of Acts don't even seem to live exactly by these instructions. There's, uh, we do see them embodying some aspects of them or trying to live out some principles of them, But they don't don't go about with no money belts, only one pair of clothes, and all of that. And so we need to respect that. These are specific instructions for a specific task at this specific moment in Jesus' ministry. So keep the original setting in mind first. Once we've grasped that, then we reflect on how they might apply to our situation. So here's what he says to the 72. He says in verse 3, Go... Behold, I'm sending you out like lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one along the way. Travel light, don't take extras, and be urgent in your task. Don't get sidetracked and don't get distracted. That seems to be the force of what he's getting at here. Greet no one along the way. Like, stay focused on your task. You, you, your, your job is to go to these various cities I'm sending you to to announce the presence of my kingdom and that I am coming. And so be very focused on your task and travel light. No extra money belt, no money bag, and not, not an extra pair of sandals, right? You're traveling light, you're going quick. That's the focus here. Um, verse 5 and following, he says, And whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house, shalom to you in this house. And if a man of peace is there, Your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. If your peace rests upon him, you're welcomed in this house. Verse 7 says, stay in that house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer is deserving of his wages. Don't move from house to house. So when you arrive in a city, announce the peace. If they welcome you, your peace will stay there. Settle down in that house. And gladly partake of whatever food they serve you. Eat eat their food and let them take care of you because the worker, the laborer, laborers in the harvest, is worthy of his wages for his work. Don't go from house to house in the city. So stay there. Now, here's one of the places where we see a general principle and we see how it's applied later in the New Testament. And that's instructive to us. That general principle is... uh, The worker is worthy of his wages. The laborer is deserving of his wages. The Apostle Paul quotes this very verse in 1 Timothy 5.18. And he applies it there to elders who are working hard at preaching and teaching and thus should be taken care of and provided for by the church. This helps us see how we can take the general principles here and apply them to our situation. Paul sees this general principle, the laborer is deserving of his wages, um, and sees that principle as applying to those who work for God and how they should be provided for by God's people. And so he applies it to a new situation in his day. That's instructive to us, and we can learn from that. Uh, Jesus goes on in verse 8, and he says, Whatever city you enter, and they welcome you, they receive you, eat what is served to you, right? That's, he's really restating what he just said, and heal those in that city who are sick, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So he's sending out the 72, and they're like royal heralds being sent out by the king to announce the arrival of his kingship, and his kingship comes with healing, and those healings are like signs pointing to the presence of the kingdom. The kingdom of God has come near to you. This is what what the Jews have been longing for for uh, centuries, for God's kingdom to come, for God's kingdom to uh, burst upon the scene. And so these uh, are being sent out like heralds of that very kingdom. So they're to announce the kingdom of God has come near to you. Um, And These healings are like signs pointing to the very presence of the kingdom then and also pointing ahead to what will be the case when the kingdom of God comes completely and fully. Disease and death will be removed and all things will be made well. And so they're going out as royal heralds announcing the presence of and the coming of the king. Now, that's what they're supposed to do if a city welcomes them. What happens if they enter a city and that city doesn't welcome them? Well, verse 10. Whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, Even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And so again, they're going to announce the kingdom. They're going to say, You missed your opportunity. Uh, And they do so with what seems to be a dramatic act, the kind of dramatic acts that the Old Testament prophets were famous for. Their dramatic act is to uh, take the sandals of their feet and shake off the dust of their feet uh, and announce that even the dust of your city is not worth Uh, Our feet, we wipe it off in protest of you. Look what you're missing out on. You're missing out on the very kingdom of God, the thing that you were longing for. Interestingly enough, we see Paul and Barnabas use this same dramatic act in their ministry for the Jews who didn't believe in the city of Pisidian Antioch. So when the Jews in that city, in Acts chapter 13, um, reject the gospel, and reject Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas take this same action and shake it off. And maybe it was a well-known symbolic action of, we're we done with you, you're missing out on your opportunity, we're moving on. I, I don't know, but it's a dramatic act that communicates uh, a change of direction and that these people are missing out on the kingdom of God. And Jesus actually then issues a stern warning Um, to how serious this is. This is not a minor thing. He says in verse 12, I say to you, it will be more tolerable on that day, presumably meaning the final day, the ultimate day, the day that God's kingdom comes fully and completely, and the day that judgment thus is meted out, it will be more tolerable on that day for Sodom than for that city. Sodom, as we know from our Old Testament, was destroyed by God in a very dramatic fashion. The story is recorded in Genesis 18 and 19. And here it's used as an example of a city who is notoriously evil and didn't welcome its visitors in peace because of their evil. And as a result, it went up in smoke. And so Jesus is saying, whatever city doesn't receive you, it's going to be worse on the final day for that city than what happened to Sodom. Well, that leads Jesus then to pronounce woes on some of the towns that have already uh, seen Jesus, heard his teaching, seen his miracles, and yet been resistant to welcoming Jesus the king and his kingdom. And so he pronounces woes on these cities in verses 13 and following. This is what he says. He says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that had occurred in you had occurred in Tyre and Sidon they would have repented long ago long ago, in uh, sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth and ashes was a visible sign in their cultures of repentance, of mourning, and, and specifically in this case, mourning their sin, mourning uh, their wrongdoing. And so it's a picture of repentance. And he uses Tyre and Sidon, two Old Testament cities that were Often enemies of and hostile towards um, the ancient Israelites, and Jesus says, Chorazin, Bethsaida, two towns right on the north northern coast of the Sea of Galilee, towns where Jesus preached, towns where people from those cities have gathered to hear Jesus preach, towns that have seen his miracles, heard the reports of his miracles. And these these two. Uh, towns on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, right? They're near the place where Jesus fed the 5,000. Bethsaida was uh, originally the hometown of Peter and Andrew and Philip. They're they're originally from it. That's where they grew up. And so these towns have had a close connection with Jesus and his ministry. And Jesus says, look, you two towns, because of your hostility and your faithlessness, you're wor- worse off than Tyre and Sidon from the Old Testament. Read what happened to them. He goes on in verse 15, and he now adds Capernaum to the mix. He says, "And you, Capernaum, will not uh, be exalted to heaven, will you? No, you'll be brought down to Hades. Uh, Capernaum was like ground zero for Jesus' ministry. That was where he made sort of his launching pad and his headquarters was the city of Capernaum. They've seen, they've had more access to Jesus they've seen more miracles, they've heard more preaching than any other place in Galilee. Um, And yet, uh, they've struggled to believe and receive Jesus as king. And so, they've heard more than anyone else and still refused. And so, he's saying, you're not going to be exalted to heaven. You're not going to be this great place, but you're going to be brought down to Hades. You're going to be brought down to destruction. You're going to be brought down to the realm of the dead. And indeed, In the course of time and history, there was no glory for Capernaum. There was no glory for this whole region that included Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. Those were all neighboring towns. The Jewish historian Josephus describes this region's complete and total devastation at the hands of the Roman general Vespasian in the Jewish war against Rome, like In just 35 short years, this region was just laid waste by the Romans. And that's what Jesus is alluding to. Like, it's going to be worse from you. You're going to be destroyed. And indeed, historically, they were. So Jesus knows that there are cities that aren't going to welcome these 72 when they are sent out because there's cities that have already rejected him and rege- resisted his kingship and his message of the kingdom. He knows rejection is part of the equation and so he says in verse 16 to the 72, the one who listens to you listens to me and the one who rejects you rejects me. But the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So because the 72 and because disciples in this case in general are intimately associated with Jesus, because they're emissaries for the king, the response of people to them is really their response to Jesus. And People's response to Jesus is ultimately their response to God. And so if they listen to you and hear you and heed what you said, they're actually hearing and heeding Jesus. And if they reject you and don't listen, well, they're ultimately rejecting Jesus and then ultimately beyond that, rejecting God. And so with these instructions, Jesus sends them out. We don't know for how long. But they went through the villages, preaching the kingdom of God and extending and expanding the ministry and message of Jesus. And at some point, their task was over, and they regathered to Jesus. And here's what what happens, verse 17. Now, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And so they're ecstatic about the spiritual authority that they've experienced and the power that they've seen at work through them. And Jesus said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. It seems that Jesus is saying that the effectiveness of their ministry was causing Satan to lose power and lose some of his glory. That Satan's own kingdom was losing ground through the work of the 72 as they expanded God's kingdom. And in this way, Jesus, what he seems to be doing is putting their success... Onto the map of the spiritual realm. This didn't just happen merely in a few towns in Galilee. Uh, They're being used by God in the great cosmic conflict between God and the Satan. And this puts their ministry into spiritual perspective. And Jesus reaffirms that authority and that spiritual perspective. He says in verse 19, Behold, I've given you authority to walk on snakes and scorpions and authority over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. It's possible that Jesus means this literally and certainly God has and does and is perfectly capable of of keeping his servants from from harm, and from injury. And again, remember, we're talking specifically to the 72 here, but he knows he's going to entrust his ministry to others beyond even the 72, beyond the 12, that throughout history there's going to be other emissaries. More likely, it seems to me, that when he says snakes and scorpions, that's likely a metaphor for Satan and his minions. Notice he's talking about all the authority of the power Of the enemy, and the enemy that he's just talked about is Satan himself in the preceding verse. And so, what he seems to be saying is not not like physical harm, not literal snakes and scorpions. What he seems to be saying is that no attack of the evil one, no attack of Satan and his uh, minions, will be able to prevent their ministry, to prevent them from expanding his kingdom. That seems to be the point he's getting at in verse 19. Then he goes on in verse 20 and says, Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this. Don't rejoice um, that, that spirits are subject to you. Don't rejoice that you have spiritual power and spiritual authority. Here's what you should rejoice in. But rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Their greatest source of joy should come not from their spiritual power or the success of their ministry. Their greatest spiritual joy should come from their relationship with God and the security they experience with him. Well, the joy of the 72 and the work of God through them leads then Jesus into a prayer of praise. And so Jesus prays this way. He says in verse 21, at that time, Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit, and he said, and so their joy leads Jesus to joy. This joy is motivated by the Holy Spirit, and Jesus praises God like this. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent, and you've revealed them to infants, that that your kingdom is actually Going to average, ordinary people, the word infants in context doesn't refer to, uh, like, literally little babies. It refers to lowly and insignificant people in context. He's talking about the 72, and not only the 72, but whoever the 70 uh, believed through the ministry of the 72— the average people, the ordinary people, the lowly people, the people all throughout the gospel of Luke who are flocking to Jesus. The the lame, the blind, the disabled, the outcasts, and even some foreigners, right? Those people, the lowly and the insignificant. That's what the word infant means here. And so he's praising God that, that he has revealed himself to The lowly and the insignificant, and this is a consistent thing, more lowly and poor and common folk receive the kingdom than than the elite and the powerful. You hear this, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29, where Paul says, "...for consider your calling, brothers and sisters." that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. He's chosen the insignificant things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he might, might nullify the things that are so that no human may boast before God. That's what Jesus is praising God for here in Luke chapter 10. He's praising God for that very thing that's consistent in his kingdom. Jesus goes on and says, Yes, Father, for doing so was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son determines to reveal him. Jesus is saying that the Father is the one who knows who the Son is, right? We've seen that throughout the Gospel of Luke at his baptism. This is my beloved Son in chapter 9, the very last chapter at the Transfiguration. This is my Son. Listen to him, right? The Son is the one who knows who the Father is. And so the Father and the Son are in sync in this revealing ministry, and they, they know each other, and they're sharing each other, and And note the end there where Jesus says, and anyone to whom the Son determines to reveal him. and That idea of determines uh, literally is chooses or wills, right? That the Father, in other words, is revealed by the Son. That's the point of that last line. You cannot know the Father apart from the Son. So if someone claims to know God, but denies Jesus, then they don't actually know God, because God is now revealed in the Son in Jesus himself. At that moment, then Jesus turns and looks to the disciples, and he says to them privately, turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see the things you see, and didn't see them, and to hear the things you hear, and didn't hear them. That um, you're getting to see who the father really is. You're getting to see how he's fulfilling his kingdom through the son, that uh, Jesus is the, the fulfillment of ancient hopes. And the 72 and these disciples, like his apostles, they're getting to see this up close and personal. They're getting a front row seat to the fulfillment of the ancient hopes of their people. Now, let me just offer one simple reflection from this section. There's probably a handful of things we could focus on. But let me offer one simple reflection from this section as we wrap it up. And that's this, that discipleship entails mission. Discipleship entails mission. Jesus says, plead with the Lord of the harvest that he might send out more workers He's, he's got his 12 apostles, and obviously they're going to be sent out on mission. But here we have 72 unnamed disciples who Jesus is sending out as well. And that's just part of what it means to be a disciple. Jesus... Uh, even says he's using infants to carry it forward. The low, the insignificant, because they're the ones who see who he is. They're the ones who get it. They're the ones who trust him. And so they see it, they get it. And he's rejoicing that God uh, has revealed it to him. And they're the ones who are carrying it forward. And that's just part of what it means to be a disciple. And so as disciples today, we need to remember that as we grow in discipleship to Jesus part of what that means is being on mission with Jesus that uh, a disciple particularly a mature disciple somebody who's both like Jesus in character and also involved in Jesus's mission that's what it means to be a disciple and we see that here that Jesus sends out disciples Uh, into the mission field, on mission with him. So wherever we live uh, and whatever we do, every uh, sector of our life, every sphere of our life is an opportunity for uh, the mission of Jesus, for God's kingdom to come in some sort of way and God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We who are called to discipleship are also called to mission.